Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, our guest is Kristen Hurwitz with Hurwitz Law. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Gary. So uh, what made you pursue a career as a uh, business attorney? Well, I think like a lot of people, especially entrepreneurs, um, that, that story kind of starts well before it seems like it would start. Um, if I look back to, you know, in college, my dad actually took off with my student loan money halfway through my freshman year at UCLA. And I remember finding out um, because I went to go into the dorms for um, breakfast with a friend and I was denied entry when I swiped my card there. There was just no money on the account. And thankfully, my friend swiped me in and for like that time and for the next three weeks, while I searched for a job, but I felt so anxious all day before getting back to the desktop computer, because we didn't have smartphones back then, (laughs) in my dorm room to confirm what I already knew. And I think that experience of financial scarcity, um, you know, is just one piece of the puzzle. Um, That was definitely the norm for my family growing up. And I know for a lot of other families, especially because my mother took care of the kids while my dad made the money so when he didn't hit sales goals, we'd be in this place of financial fear that didn't feel great. So I knew heading into college and beyond, I'd want work that would provide a reliable income, mm-hmm. which, you know, law is one of those very traditional careers that can do that. Um, but I also knew that I needed something that I found meaningful. And I didn't know at that point if it was possible to do both because I just hadn't seen that done in my personal experience. So I remember my kind of first brush up with entrepreneurship really happened when my uncle was starting his own business. And he asked me as I was, you know, getting ready for college, what I was going to do for my work and my major. And I said, you know, I just want something that pays the bills, but also, you know, isn't completely boring. (laughs) And he had said, well, you know, you could be a contracts lawyer that'll definitely pay the bills. (laughs) And I said, that's great, but I don't think that met my second criteria there. So um, I really wanted to find something interesting and I shut down that idea, but it must've stuck with me um, because here I am. And then out of college, you know, I continued that practical piece where I started a job in the financial services industry. And that's really where I discovered how much I love helping small business owners navigate the products and services that could help them streamline their businesses, allowing them to spend their time where it really counted. And of course, where it also felt good for them. And so after that, I went on to work at the intersection of law and finance within a law firm. And there I helped fund these small businesses and entrepreneurs. And that's what really convinced me that I could do interesting work as a lawyer. So that's when I made the decision to actually leave my job and go to law school. And then from there, I wound up at a women-founded, women-led venture-backed startup that was committed to 
finding women online and getting them paid for the stories they were sharing and these communities that they had built on trust and storytelling. And then several years after that, around the time that company went through an acquisition and I had my first son, which happened to completely overlap, I took a leap of faith and finally bet on myself, thanks to the examples of the many women in that network who had shown me what was possible. But they'd also shown me that there was a real need for someone like me who had experience in legal and finance and could translate those business fundamentals in a way that, you know, your average business person who's just getting started could really understand and then help them learn how to protect their work as well as themselves while they expand their impact as well as their revenue. Now, so, um, it sounds like one of the things that, that really got you going um, you know, with the law was because of being woman-backed and, and woman-owned and, and everything else. Now, have you continued that, uh, that trend and, and um, to continue giving back? Yes, I have. So a lot of my clients are women-owned, not all of them, um, <laughs> but I do get asked that quite a lot. And I really, I founded my law practice on giving back because from the start, I decided that I was going to follow in the steps of one of Blogger's founders, Elisa Camahort Page, who had inspired me in the early days of my career by telling me just the story of her sharing at least 10% of her income to different organizations and groups that were doing the real work on the ground, making the change that she thought was important in her community. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that resonated. And at the time I didn't have the financial ability to do that, but it kind of stuck with me so that when I did launch my practice, I kind of treated it the same way that people would recommend you treat contributing to your 401k, where you just do it from the start and then you don't miss that money. Right. And I was, lucky to be able to continue that um, these past almost seven years. That's, I mean, that I, I think that that's very commendable that, that you are continuing to, to give back and these principles that you've learned to, to continue them because it, it definitely seems lots of times as people, you know, start growing their businesses and stuff, they tend to get away from their principles. Um, so it's definitely nice to, to see that you're, that you're continuing to do that. Um, so tell me, what are some of the, the questions that, um, as these young entrepreneurs are coming into you that you're wishing they're asking you when they come in and they're really not? So a lot of times people start, they think they know what they need. Like I need a lawyer. I need to, I just need somebody to look at my contract real fast, or I just need like this one little thing changed. And, um, what I really wish people were thinking about was the more holistic picture I think so often in business and in life, it's so easy to get tunnel vision and you're focusing on this specific project or you just want to get this client contract out the door so that you can, you know, mark that revenue on um, your spreadsheet and just keep going. And I think that like with everything, like the more intentional you can be about things from the start or at whatever point you take the time to actually sit and do some strategic planning for your business, because not everybody has the ability to do that at the very beginning. Um, I think that that's, you know, you are so much better served and your business is better served by just taking some time to really do more of a landscape instead of focusing on just the contract or the specific section in the contract, you know, what else 
do you need to think about in your business? A lot of businesses start with just putting up a website. Anybody can put a website on the internet <laughs> immediately right. or within a couple hours, um, thanks to tools like Squarespace that you know, were not around when you and I launched our businesses. But people don't know that just by launching that website, it's triggering legal requirements right away, including privacy policy. And there are so many other little things like that in business or seemingly little things that can become really big, expensive problems down the line. And they could have just been avoided if you just talked to a lawyer even for 30 minutes or an hour from the start, just to get that little bit of information, you know, and plant that seed so that you can think about it once you're ready for whatever that next stage is. Yeah, lots of times I, I, I constantly preach, you know, kind of proactive planning. For me, it's proactive tax planning. Um, so I really try to tell people, you know, look, you, you know, you need to come in and talk to me before you decide to, you know, venture into that business or buy that rental property or whatever it is that you may do. So then that way you can kind of see what's out there, know what your options are. Um, when somebody doesn't do that from a, a, a business standpoint legally, what are some of the things that can happen to them that people don't always think about? So I'd say one of the most common mistakes that I've seen made that people don't anticipate are service providers who are signing a client and not collecting any amount of money at the very beginning of that relationship. And they might be, it might be because they're billing on an hourly basis and they're not sure how long things will take, especially if they're really early in business. But what happens is that at some point you're going to get a client who tries to skip out on the bill. Mm -hmm. It's happened to every single service provider I have ever talked to, <laughs> including myself. Right. And, you know, we learn the hard way and we learn really quick not to do that again. Um, but I think that that is one of the simplest things that is so preventable. Just take a non-refundable deposit to get that person confirmed on your calendar, in your schedule. Like, Just protect your time especially if this is going to be some sort of longer ongoing engagement, you can always revisit what makes sense, but get that payment upfront or at least some portion of it. And then, you know, continue to communicate as you grow. So what about um, when, you know, a couple people decide, Hey, we're going to start a business up. What kind of issues do you run into? You know, if you don't do the proper planning. So, Right now, especially, I have been helping quite a few people with co-founder disputes. And what happens there is that two people are very excited to get going on a project together. Initially, they call it like a project or a collaboration. They may not even really see it as a business yet. But at some point, they do start treating it like a business. It's actually earning money. Um, or even if it's not earning money, some sort of assets, intellectual property is created and there's nothing in writing saying who owns what, who contributed what, what the revenue split is going to be between those partners, um, or even just formalizing that this isn't a general partnership, which is not something you want to accidentally create under the law, um, that like actually getting an LLC in place or setting up both people as their own business and then having an agreement between those two businesses. There are different ways to structure it depending on what the ultimate goals of each person as well as the business are. 
but again, just taking the time to sit, have that somewhat difficult conversation at the start can prevent those problems down the road where one partner runs away with all the assets and is trying to, you know, use those in a way that wasn't originally anticipated. Perhaps the other person created them. It's, you know, it can create quite a bit of a mess with both intellectual property as well as the many horror stories I think we've all heard of somebody just taking the money from the business bank account and taking off. So if I don't sit down with a professional like yourself um, and I'm, I'm starting up a business with someone else, and we get into a dispute, what happens there? What, what's the, the, the governing body or, or document? Well, there are no documents. So what, right. what kind of you know, governs what happens from there? So then you're relying on whatever the laws are that apply depending on where each of those people is located. I know not everybody is doing business with their neighbor next door in the same jurisdiction right. anymore. So you might have somebody in California, somebody else in North Carolina, um, you know, maybe a third partner in Minnesota. You've got multiple different state laws that could apply here. And really what will come down to it, to who wins most of the time with these smaller businesses is who actually has the funds to be able to hire the lawyer? Because it's going to cost you thousands and thousands of dollars at that point to actually, you know, hammer this out. And often smaller businesses may not have, like the individual owners themselves may not have that liquid cash available, mm -hmm. again, depending on the stage of business. But, you know, there might be some inequity in the financial power of those relationships of founders. And that's something that you also want to take into account in those government documents that you should be creating when you're at the outset of creating this business. So, so what it really comes down to is plan, 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 come see a professional like you before you, before you get started. Yes. Talk to somebody. Legal Zoom is not my favorite, but you know, <laughs> that's all you have the budget for. Find somebody, talk to an actual human being don't go to Google School of Law, please. <laughs> um, everybody tries to do that. You waste so many hours on the internet and it, you know, everybody could have been better served just splitting a consult with a lawyer who is not taking you as a client yet, but can at least give you some initial things to think about as well as, you know, scope out a budget for what these things may cost. Yeah, it's funny you you mentioned LegalZoom. I kind of look, look at LegalZoom as, is, um, you know, just the same thing as like TurboTax. And if I'm going through it and I don't understand the questions and I'm answering them, who knows what, what you're getting at the end. So yeah. I have the same fears. <laughs> so what are some of the um, biggest fears that your clients have when they initially come in the door to you? And how do you help them overcome those fears? So I think there are a couple different big fears. So I think there's one, like the fear that kind of prevents people from coming in the door initially is that they're not totally sure if their business is going to go somewhere, or maybe it's already blown up, but they're so busy that they don't feel like they have time for legal, or they feel like they don't have the budget for legal. Mm -hmm. but that's where like people really need to take a step back and look at like, can you afford to not have the legal protections? Because if you don't do that planning and that work up front by meeting with somebody, 
you are putting yourself in your business as well as the great work that you're putting into the world with your clients at risk. And I think that at the point where I'm meeting with people, often they've already recognized those things and they're ready to get started in some way. But one of the big fears I think they have is that, you know, legal can be really expensive. You don't necessarily know what you're getting because most law firms charge an hourly rate. And so these, these small businesses, they, they know that they need information. They're afraid of doing things wrong. They know there's a ton of different laws that they need to think about. They don't exactly know what those are or <laughs> what exactly they need. Right. And that's all really scary as a small business owner, um, for myself included. But um, really, like the one thing that I recommend is you have to, at some point, build legal into your budget the same way you do insurance, the same way you do tax planning and your you know, bookkeeping services. It's just an essential component of doing business. And if you don't have that person that really understands you and your risk tolerance in your business, who has custom created those contracts for you, who knows them in and out, then when a problem happens, one, it, you know, most problems can be avoided by doing some of that advanced planning, but two, that person will be ready to jump on it immediately. Whereas if you're trying to find a new attorney, you know, it may take a while to find somebody who can even help you or is willing and able to take you on as a new client. They don't understand your business. I talked to an opposing counsel last week who didn't, couldn't even pronounce the name of his new client who is pursuing some litigation. And that is just so indicative of some of the problems that you can run into working with these more traditional law firms who are, you know, they're, they're used to working with bigger corporations who are doing big mergers and acquisitions or litigation, you know, these transactions that earn them millions of dollars in fees. So with small businesses, you know, who don't have a budget of millions of dollars, they would just end up shuddering overnight if they ran into that situation. I think that's where it just really becomes important to kind of set some of that um, like self-limiting beliefs around money and things like that um, aside so that you can really focus on just getting a concrete plan in place that you can actually implement now or over the next 12 months. So it sounds like, you know, a couple things. One is they need to make sure that they find um, a an attorney that is, uh, I'm going to say that they will be able to help them. That's their size. Cause you're saying, you know, that the big companies and stuff, they're, they're not necessarily suited for somebody who's just starting up a small business um, type thing, but then also spending the money now is going to save you exponentially on the back end um, in case anything gets challenged or if you have, you know, other people that you're working with, um, just being able to, to protect yourself. Right. Um, so besides not coming and seeing a professional like you to get started, what are some of the common mistakes that you see, uh, you know, your clients making? Um, I'll say that, like, I usually start with like a revenue first perspective. So I take a look at like, what is your main revenue stream? Or if you've got multiple ones, one of my clients has six, um, like, let's take a look at each of those. And what is the document that people are interacting with that's governing that relationship? So let's start there. Let's, you know, see how you're structuring your payments. 
if it's an online store or like a product-based business, you know, is it clear where your refund policy is or your return policy, even if it is no refunds and no returns, it has to be really clear. Right. Uh, California and other states will read in a policy if you don't have one that's very clear in writing. And that's something that's really simple to fix. Um, I think the, the next thing is just making sure that your liability as a small business owner is limited so that you know you have some sort of aggregate liability cap that's in a contract. And that's important because a lot of small business owners, like they don't have access to venture capital funds. <laughs> they are you know, building something organically and sustainably over time and bootstrapping it. And you need to just make sure that like at a maximum, the contract price is, you know, what you're going to be on the hook for if you really needed to, um, you know, go to the mat with a client. I think the other things is people really underestimate what is required when you're launching a website, because from like using stock photos, um, there are so many free stock photo services out there and none of them guarantee <laughs> that, um, that they have the copyright to any of those images or that the people who, you know, might be professional or up and coming photographers who are contributing those photos and saying it's okay to use them. Um, they're not even guaranteeing that those people have the copyright to it. So you could find yourself in a situation where you use some stock photo image on your website, maybe you use it on your Instagram, um, LinkedIn, whatever social media platform you're on, and you can get a cease and desist letter from a photographer who does own the copyright to that and potentially end up getting sued. And meanwhile, your free stock photography site has <laughs> required you to indemnify them, which means act as their insurance right. because you chose to, to use the free photos that they made available through their platform. So that's one of those things where, you know, one photo could end up costing you thousands of dollars, you know, well over what a photo shoot would cost to get custom branded images, which right. will look much better, perform much better. So even if that's not in your budget at the start, there are better ways to start even with some very low cost stock photography sites that, you know, do guarantee like these are images that I took as a photographer. It's a one to one thing. So. So you, you brought up something, um, you know, when you raised that in California. So another important thing using a professional like yourself is, you know, you're not using, you know, Uncle Bob who lives in Ohio to give you advice on your business in California. You really need to look at someone who knows uh, California law to be able to help you. Yes. And so I think a lot of times people don't always realize that attorneys are licensed in each state. Mm -hmm. So I'm a California licensed attorney. There are also bodies of law that apply across the United States because we're not just doing business in our state anymore. So if I sell to a customer that is in Michigan, I need to make sure that, you know, I understand what would potentially come into play with that transaction. So that is where it's not just the attorney that's in your state, but also somebody who is familiar with doing business across state lines, because in that case, multiple different state laws could apply, or at least you need to be in compliance with whatever the minimum requirements are in each of those states. So I think that's where, you know, doing business online has such 
a huge ability to expand our reach as small business owners. And it also can expose us to a lot more potential liability. And I know everybody's doing business online pretty much right now <laughs> because of COVID. So it's one of those things where at the beginning of COVID, as everybody was trying to pivot overnight, um, a lot of brick and mortars were bringing all their inventory online. These are conversations I've had over and over again. You've got to have a privacy policy. You need to have some terms. You've, you know, There's just other things that you need to think about when you're putting this whole beautiful new website together. Yeah, because I, I know since that's kind of happened in, in the, the Amazons of the world and things like that, that people are selling their products and some of it is through Amazon, you really need to, to be careful because you're thinking, oh, well, I'm selling you know outside of my state. I don't need to worry about sales tax. Mm-hmm. Oh, you do because the state that it's going to wants their money also. Um, so yeah, there's definitely... Uh, a lot of things that, that going, you know, through the internet and stuff like that, that, that has caused trouble for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the, the biggest challenges that you're facing right now? I mean, as a business owner who is also a mom, <laughs> I've got um, a six-year-old who is on distance learning. So trying to manage that ever-changing schedule. I've got a three-year-old who thankfully is back in the daycare right now. Right. Um, but I think also just, um, it's so different having the conversations online. Like I'm so thankful to tools like Zoom to allow us to continue running our businesses. But you know, before all of this, I was giving a lot of workshops in person and meeting right. people face-to-face And just that interaction, I know, like for me, I find it personally challenging not to have as much of that because I get so much energy from those interactions. Mm -hmm. I think we we all are really missing that right now. Um, But otherwise, I've been really fortunate that my business has been so busy during this time because one of the unfortunate reality checks is that a lot of these small businesses that had been pushing off and avoiding legal for a long time, it's like that that thing that we kind of pushed to the corner because we're a little afraid of it. <laughs> um, it came back to bite so many people right away as contracts were getting canceled left and right, as you know, businesses were shuttered, but their landlords were saying they still had to pay 100% right. of the rent that was based on revenues that were not even going to be possible to earn this year. And so that's, you know, I've been fortunate to also know that I've, been able to have an impact. And I know that I've saved quite a few small businesses from shuttering during this time. And I've also helped launch quite a few others that have come out of these more unfortunate situations where there's mass layoffs and everything else. So I feel lucky doing the work that I'm doing right now because more than ever, it's very much needed. And I think, unfortunately, because of how quickly everything shifted, um, you know, people that had been putting it off realized they really needed two you, years ago. <laughs> so. yeah, right. Do you see, I'm going to say kind of like, do you see contract law kind of changing because of COVID in the way, like you said, you know, it's like, you know, my, my, my lease says that depending on what I have in revenues depends on what I pay in rent and, um, you know, you hear the horror stories about people that were supposed to get married during this time and, you know, the venues not being allowed to be open because of it and, you know, refunding money or not refunding money. I mean, do you see that, that this is really going to change contract law 
or just the way people write contracts? Um, we'll see if it ends up changing contract law. It will be interesting to see what happens with court cases that come out of all of this. I know that a lot of people at the very beginning were scrambling to get a force majeure clause in their contract without even really understanding that most force majeure contract or clauses wouldn't have really covered the situation we're in because they're written very narrowly. But there are ways to negotiate them and expand them. And I would hope that regardless of whether the law changes or not, at least I hope that people will take their contract negotiation process a little more seriously and be more mindful about what they're signing. And I think that having, you know, some legal eyes on that is always a huge benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, <laughs> I hesitate to say that sometimes because I know so many people who have sent a contract off to a lawyer, suddenly got this like $4,500 bill for a review for a contract that wasn't even going to earn them that much. Right. And that's not the type of review I'm talking about. That is an example though, of how out of touch some lawyers and law firms can be when they're working with small businesses, when that's not the core of their business as a Mm. law firm. Um, But what you can do is just, you can have a limited scope review where somebody just runs through and does a sanity check on it and make sure that there's nothing in there that is too terribly concerning. Or if there is, then it gets fixed before you sign it. I know with a lot of the events industry, I serve so many businesses in the event industry too. And Um, it's going to create this ongoing um, just tension between venues and the vendors and the event organizers themselves because, you know, they're having, they're having to have these meaningful conversations around risk allocation and who's going to take the hit when something like COVID happens. Right. Um, And I think that that's just, it's another good example. Like one of the contracts that I had negotiated for a client was well written and did anticipate something like this being at least possible, even if we did not think it would happen. And my client was able to get back almost $2 million from the venue just because the contract was written properly and allocated the risk because this is a small business and the venue is a large business and also has a stake with, you know, the local government. And, you know, it's just, it can get really complicated because of that, but it's always worth looking at it and asking. And you'll, you'll be surprised sometimes what you get a yes on or what people just maybe don't read and don't push back on. I'm not, sometimes. So. Yeah. Cause I, cause I'm, you know, really interested in seeing what happens with, you know, because of this, with, with the way contracts are written and, and, contract law is, but then also the way that, that insurance companies handle it, because many of them are like, yep, nope, this isn't covered under us. And I know there's some court cases going on and stuff. And it's, so it's going to be really interesting to see um, how, how this really plays into the way that we do business going forward. Um, I, I'm hoping it turns out for the, for the good. Um, I'm just afraid. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of small businesses, you know, go under as it is. And I would hate to see this, you know, push that even more. Right. I would hope that at some point there's a more human way of approaching all of this because really at the end of the day, you know, yes, there are these huge companies out there, but when we're talking about small businesses, like it's one human to another, this is very much personal as well as business. And I think 
one of the things that has really helped in the many contract dispute negotiations I've been involved in these past, what is it, almost eight, is it eight months now, um, <laughs> is that like the only way we're going to get through this is together. And if like, if everybody takes a little bit of a hit versus one right. person taking the whole, you know, that, that is the way to really get through as a community. And I think, especially within the event industry, like that's the only way through. Right. I agree with you. What, I guess, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you first got started um, on your own business? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I know to charge a deposit up front. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I know that one too. <laughs> besides that, um, gosh, let me think for a minute. I think the biggest lesson in all of my entrepreneurial journey is just to continue coming back to my why and being really intentional. Like, why am I in business for myself? Right. I'm not in business for myself to create a law firm where I'm grinding myself into the ground. Like that's already been created. I could do that. Uh, I don't want to do that. Right. Not to. Um, but also like in terms of who I'm serving, you know, that like, it's just, everything, all of these little decisions or seemingly little decisions are really easy to get away from. Like you said earlier, um, when I was talking about giving back 10% of my revenue. And I think that just continuing to come back to that and reassessing why I'm in business, who am I serving? You know, what's, what's the point of any of this, which I think is a question many of us have probably asked over and over in 2020. Um, and yeah, um, and just being flexible about the fact that also sometimes the way that I started isn't how I plan to continue and that's okay. And sometimes something I'm doing right now is not part of my bigger scheme, but if it's going to help this one client, that's not, you know, perhaps my ideal client and I feel like I'm going to make an impact there and I'm okay with that. That's also okay. So I think that general flexibility, um, is something that is important in life, but definitely in business. Right. So what does your ideal client look like? My ideal client is somebody who, they start with like an inkling that like things aren't quite the best way that they could be, or they have an idea that they could do it a little differently. And they're very firmly rooted in their values. They know what their core values are. They've taken the time to define that. They often come from a historically marginalized group or you know, a group that is, I mean, small business owners as a group generally are historically underrepresented by legal because they just aren't worth it from the big law firm standpoint right. in terms of revenue. And my ideal client also is somebody who wants to make a meaningful impact through their business, but also outside of their business. And the really, when I said my story at the beginning, like I didn't know that it was possible to, um, to make money and also make an impact doing something that felt deeply fulfilling. That is, you know, something that my clients know is possible, or they're starting to learn it's possible if they're earlier stage in their career. And I think that that's really everything. Like they come back to their why they're intentional about what they are building. 
and they want to be in it for the long run and the long run may shift and change, you know, and look a little differently from one year to five years from now, but they, they aren't looking for a quick payday. They're not, you know, seeking VC backing. Um, They just are trying to, you know, build community and make a difference doing the thing that they know they're really good at. What, so somebody fits this criteria. How, how do they find you? So they can always hop onto my website. It's Kristen Hurwitz at, um, sorry, kristenherwitz.com. Or my Instagram is really like the platform that I choose to hang out on. It seems to just, I don't know, strike that balance between business and personal um, because I, I very much believe in integrating those things. So my handle on Instagram is Hurwitz Law. And I do offer monthly legal office hours for non-clients. Um, on the third Thursday of each month. So that's a 30 minute session, you know, where, where entrepreneurs and small business owners can get, you know, these burning questions answered and get pointed in the right direction without having to invest in a fuller ongoing relationship. So it's one of the ways that I try to get back to my community of small California and online businesses, just to make sure that they're getting that leg up that they need at whatever point they're ready to, to start thinking about legal. I'd like to, you know, thank you for your time today. Um, I think it was very insightful um, in, in what you had to say. And I certainly like the holistic approach that you take uh, in your business and, and stick into your core principles. So today, our guest, it was uh, Kristen Hurwitz with Hurwitz Law. We really thank you for your time. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.